everything's saturated, right? Like I talk to people that say, Oh, I want to start this. And then they're like, but there's so much competition. And I'm like, well, what doesn't have competition? Welcome to Honesty Commerce, a podcast dedicated to cutting through the BS and finding actionable advice for online store owners. I'm your host, Chase Clymer, and I believe running a direct-to-consumer brand does not have to be complicated or a guessing game. On this podcast, we interview founders and experts who are putting in the work and creating real results. I also share my own insights from running our top Shopify consultancy, Electric Eye. We cut the fluff in favor of facts to help you grow your e-commerce business. Let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Honest E-Commerce. Today, welcoming to the show, the first guest that's told me that they were a fan of the podcast before we got them on it. So I'm super excited uh, to talk to someone that's seen it from both sides. Uh, Colby Kane is joining us from Aviator USA. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Chase. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm, I'm super excited to have you. Uh, we already were having a lot of fun in the pre-show. Uh, so let's just kind of dive right in. For those that are unaware, can you tell us a bit, uh, you know, what is the product? What is Aviator? What do you bring to the market? Obviously, um, people will go towards the, the sunglass style, but that's not the brand. No, that's not the brand. In fact, we don't make sunglasses, but, um, Aviator, um, is basically Aviator is a travel lifestyle brand. We like to provide um, style and function for the travel lifestyle. That's our tagline. Um, and what that means is it's just it's just clothes. It's clothing to help you wear more and pack less, so you can go further. Um, we're big. Um, we're big into like packing one bag, not checking a bag, and so just bringing clothes that will take you from the plane straight through your destination. Um, and we're a small brand. We're based in Los Angeles, and um, we started it in 2012. Awesome! So let's just dive right in there. What uh, what was going on back in 2012? Where did the idea come from? Uh, and you know, with a with a brand that old, I'm guessing D 2 C wasn't even on your radar when you started it. No, exactly. Because the brand um, Aviator, I actually trademarked it back in 2004 um, as a more of an American heritage brand that was a traditional retail clothing brand. So we would do trade shows. Um, we started with t-shirts, just um, trying to make an elevated version of your favorite tea. And we did the whole like old school fashion route, which was um, make some products, go to trade shows, sell your wares in Las Vegas and New York. And then um, go into production, ship those stores, all their goods, and then go chase them down to get paid um, to get their get your money back. So I did that for a bunch of years, and and that was okay. But it was kind of just I, I noticed a lot of things that were broken in that business model, and things that I didn't love doing. I a few years into it, I started really not liking what I was doing, but I couldn't also just quit and get out. I was kind of in too deep. Um. But it was in, in 2012, I was at a trade show in Las Vegas selling my American Heritage brand that was named Aviator, so the same name. Um, no function in the clothing whatsoever. And it wasn't designed for travel. It's just think Ralph Lauren, but um, made in America, vintage inspired type of clothing. And we, um, well, I was at that trade show and, and I met a guy that did a Kickstarter and was showing his brand. At the, he was trying to go the opposite. He started a Kickstarter and then was doing DTC, but wanted to do wholesale as well. But I was kind of scratching my head. 
why would he want to do wholesale? Like, cause I, I was so burnt out on wholesale. I just, it just wasn't for me anymore. So, but anyway, when I got to learn about their story, I never even heard of Kickstarter. So I kind of went back to the hotel and I researched Kickstarter and I saw this person's campaign and I saw what they were doing and I was like really impressed. And I basically finished out that trade show, accepted my orders, but um, I never shipped them. I went back to LA and designed a product that had function for travel, shot the video, put together the project. And this was in, I think, June or July of 2012. And we launched that product on Kickstarter and it took off. It was that product was called the Red Eye Hoodie, which is still in our, um, it's still a product that we sell. Um, we've elevated it since then, but um, that started the DTC journey for me. Awesome. So uh, launching on Kickstarter is an awesome path to kind of test product market fit. So I love when I, I love when I hear stories about how it works uh, for brands. So after Kickstarter, though, this is kind of where I think that Kickstarter transitioning from Kickstarter to like an actual brand is difficult for some uh, that have a successful Kickstarter is like, what do you do after that? Like, obviously, you got to produce and ship it. But how do you transition from you have a successful Kickstarter campaign to having a successful e-commerce brand? Yeah, um, great question. So I didn't even really know where I was going. I knew I wanted to do DTC, but I didn't know how I was going to get those customers. I didn't know because all my customers in the past, um, Chase, were through stores, third-party stores, right? Because we were selling to boutiques and those boutiques had a relationship with the customers. And when I pivoted into making clothing for the travel lifestyle and going DTC, I was kind of like, well, how am I going to get customers to find us? And who's going to go to aviatorusa.com, right? So to your point, I, I, did real, I did start putting together the pieces like when the Kickstarter uh, that I did for the Red Eye Hoodie was successful, that I had about 1,500 people that backed that project. So I then started realizing, oh, this could be my foundation for my DTC brand. Um, and I did already have a Shopify store, aviatorusa.com. I, I had already had that, um, even though I wasn't even selling on it. I just kind of thought I wanted to use it as a, um, like a, a lookbook for my wholesale brand prior. So I did have a... Shopify store that I probably started a year or two prior to Kickstarter, um, never accepting any orders on it. No one went there pretty much, but, but I did realize it was valuable to have that once the Kickstarter was live because I was able to collect emails and people were able to, um, go to the Kickstarter page and then go, Oh, who is this company? What do they do? And they'd go to the website, they'd see the red eye hoodie and what our mission was and just get more information about the brand. But I, I did what, what I ended up doing is, from 2012 through about 2015 or 14, I forget the dates actually, but we launched eight or nine Kickstarters, different products under the Aviator USA brand. It's really Aviator brands, but um, AviatorUSA.com website was all going to link back to that. But the the thing was is that I I would be able to road test all these products on Kickstarter. If they were successful there, I would move them over to aviatorusa.com and start selling them there. I'd also um, start marketing those customers. Anyone who backed the Kickstarter project, I would turn into an aviatorusa customer. That was the whole game plan. Um, and through those Kickstarters that we did, we 
we've got thousands of customers and that was the basis. And then we were able to start marketing using that, that as our base and those products and then start pushing those products out to media outlets, to um, influencers, travel bloggers, what have you. And then that's how we grew the brand. Yeah. So uh, I just want to reiterate for the listeners here. He just told you the playbook of how they used Kickstarter to hack like their, the finding winning products to grow a brand on Shopify. Uh, so that's an awesome tactic. And I, I thank you a lot for kind of sharing how that worked for you. Um, that was obviously a couple years back. Do you think that someone could do something similar today? Or would, or if you had to do it again today, how would you spin it? Another great question. I, I don't know how well Kickstarter works now because I, I haven't been on it in a few years. But um, I do still think it's a great... I, I'm sure it's still a great way to start a brand um, by launching a product there. I just don't know about... The, the marketing tactics and, and how you're going to drive traffic. I know obviously there's a lot more competition on, on Kickstarter and it, you know, maybe it's lost a little bit of its luster. I'm not sure. Um, I do still like keep an eye on products that, you know, I get the emails push notifications where I'll see a product that, um, from somebody else from another project that I backed and then they launched a new product and I go take a look at it. And I know there's a lot of big brands on there now. So. Um, but I do think it's probably still a, a good way to go to be scrappy if you don't have capital. Um, cause it's really hard to start a brand from nothing and, you know, have the financing and to, to just go from your website and scale that with no, nothing to start with. You know, I don't know, um, how, if I was to go about it again, I would, you, I would probably still use Kickstarter to validate a product because I think it's good for that, right? If the product is successful there, there's a good chance it'll be successful later and have legs. So I would probably still use that. It's just how would I push people to that project would probably be different. Back then, I definitely relied heavily on friends and family to get it going. Um, but I don't know what Kickstarter's algorithm is like as far as you know making somebody popular and getting it in front of the right people. Um, I'm sure it's evolved a lot. So it might actually be really great. Absolutely. Um, I think that it's never been easier to start a direct-to-consumer brand. And it's also never been more competitive to start a direct-to-consumer brand than it is now. Uh, I think the barrier of entry constantly gets lower. And then the uh, what works is constantly changing. And there's the, le- the quality of what you need to be putting out to... St- stand above the rest of the junk is just you got to put out something good to really shine these days i i completely agree there's so much competition and i mean everything's saturated right like i talk to people that say oh i want to start this and then they're like but there's so much competition and i'm like well what doesn't have competition it's really hard to find that unicorn oh i found something so brilliant and then there's nothing competing with it that's that's a rarity I just think that you have to create the project products that you believe in. And I think um, just have a great customer um, relationship like that. I mean, to me, it's for us, it's a, uh, we rely so much on customer relations um, with our business to, to separate us from some of the competition. I mean, there's also, we make things in America, so that's all. That's an, another advantage we have against a lot of our competition. We um, we're a small, nimble team, 
as well. Um, we don't have, I, I only have a few employees. Um, and we keep it nimble on purpose, um, especially during these times of 2020, 2021. It's been challenging. Absolutely. Now, uh, with kind of you've made the transition now to Shopify and you're kind of pushing products directly there, you know, still talking a couple years back. Is there anything kind of in that journey up until now uh, that you wish you could kind of go back in time and be like, hey, Colby, don't, don't do this? <laughs> <laughs> always. Yeah. Like I always have ideas for new products. Um, I've launched some products that, and I actually, I launched a product on Kickstarter that didn't get funded. So it's not all of them are successful. You know, you have to find that right, that thing, but you, it's easy to believe in something and get, and be very narrowly focused on like what that product is. And then you put it out and then everyone else is like, um, no, this is not a home run. And, but the good news is, is that people will tell you like, at least in my, my case. So I try not to spend money on those products. Like we wanted to make something right now. I won't say what it is, but we wanted to add a new product. But when I ran it by my team, they were like, eh, not too warm on the idea. And then I ran it by my wife and she shot it down pretty quickly. So, but maybe she saved me a lot of money. <laughs> I don't know. But there is, I, I will say this though, Chase, is that when you do have, when you do put some products out there, I'm going to give you another um, reason why we were able to grow. Um, when I had about five or six products on our website, we did sell um, everything kind of evenly. We, were, we first launched as primarily making hoodies, but I also did jeans. Jeans were definitely secondary. And then at one point, a, few, um, a couple years in, it flipped and the jeans went off the charts selling jeans. And then the hoodies just kind of stayed where they were at that doing that same business. But the jeans really took off and they weren't my most successful product launch on Kickstarter, but on the website today, you know, eight years later, they, they're by far number one on our, on our product list. And that was because a couple, a couple years in, there was a travel blogger who bought a pair of jeans, um, loved the pair of jeans, wrote about them, did a review on those. And we had all this traffic coming in from that source. And I noticed that in the Google analytics, I was like, I was like, why, what's this, what, what's this spike in the gene sales and eyeballs on our website. And that's what it was, was this bloggers uh, review. And we were fielding phone calls and chat messages and emails. And, and from that day on, we just started selling a lot more genes. And then we became gene centric to a, to a certain point. And now uh, realizing that, you know, this, Travel blogger and influencers were driving traffic. Did that uh, affect your guys' marketing strategy or where you're spending time and energy? Yeah, for sure. Like when it, when that happened with the first travel blogger, we didn't even have an affiliate program or we didn't have anything. But we quickly um, built that out, right? Where we signed up with one of the Shopify app uh, affiliate programs, and uh, at the back at that time, we used it was an affiliate link called uh, Affiliately was the name of the app. It's in the Shopify store. We no longer use them. We've since kind of outgrown them, but that's how we got started. And we were able to email that one travel blogger and say, Hey, we just launched an affiliate program and you are driving a lot of traffic. Would you like to sign up? She immediately signed up. And since then that we now have a handful of good um, travel bloggers that are affiliates that drive a lot of traffic to our website. And I think that so that's that definitely changed our marketing from you know 
like most brands probably that started around when we did, you're just focused on your own um, channel, which is you know our email list, right? And then you focus on Google and Facebook and Instagram, which we were. But it was it, it definitely changed when we introduced the affiliate program. Started spending money there. If you're struggling with scaling your sales, maybe Electric Eye can help. Our team has helped our clients generate millions of dollars in additional revenue through our unique brand scaling framework. You can learn more about our agency at electriceye.io. That's E L E C T R I C E Y E.io. Mesa is the Shopify expansion pack to level up your brand. By turning all your internet connected apps into your business epicenter, Mesa can lighten your workload and tame the day-to-day chaos of running your store. Join the other successful brands that have learned how to balance clever workflows with a solid infrastructure to get more done without additional overhead. Whether you need to order data in Google Sheets, add products on Etsy, or get customers added to HubSpot, Mesa has you covered. Peace of mind is right around the corner when all your apps are working seamlessly together. To put it quite simply, Mesa is a better way to work. Search Mesa, that's M-E-S-A, in the Shopify App Store and download it today. Our partner Rewind can protect your Shopify store with automated backups of your most important data. Rewind should be the first app you install to protect your store against human error, misbehaving apps, or collaborators gone bad. It's like having your very own magic undo button. Trusted by over 100,000 businesses, from side hustles to the biggest online retailers like NYX, Gatorade, and Movement Watches. Best of all, Respond to any of their welcome emails and mention this podcast, Honest E-Commerce, to get your first month absolutely free. Is your store holiday ready? Now is the time to make sure you and your team are prepared for the busy season ahead. Gorgeous, an omni-channel help desk built or e-commerce has machine learning functionality that takes the pressure off small support teams and gives them the tools to manage a large number of inquiries at scale, especially during the holiday season. Gorgeous combines all your different communication channels like email, SMS, social media, live chat, and even phone into one platform and gives you an organized view of all your customer inquiries. Their powerful functionality can save your support team hours per day and makes managing customer orders a breeze. Merchants can close tickets faster than ever with the help of pre-written responses integrated with customer data to increase the overall efficiency of customer support. Their built-in automations also free up time for support agents to give better answers to complex product-related questions, providing next-level support which helps increase sales, brand loyalty, and recognition. Eric Bandholtz, the founder of Beard Brand, says, we're a seven-figure business and we have essentially one person on customer support and experience. It's impossible to do that without tools like Gorgeous to help us innovate. Learn how to level up your customer support by speaking with their team. Visit gorgeous.grsm.io slash honest and mention this podcast when you sign up for two months free. That's G-O-R-G-I-A-S dot G-R-S-M dot I-O slash honest. Getting an online business off the ground isn't easy. So if you find yourself working late, tackling a to-do list that's a mile long with your fifth cup of coffee by your side, remember, great email doesn't have to be complicated. 
That's what Klaviyo is for. It's the email and SMS platform built to help e-commerce brands earn more money by creating genuine customer relationships. Once you set up a free Klaviyo account, you can start sending beautiful branded messages in minutes, thanks to drag and drop design templates and built-in guidance. And with e-commerce specific recommendations and insights, you can keep growing your business as you go. Get started with a free account at klaviyo.com slash honest. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot com slash honest. Absolutely. And kind of what I want to point out here is uh, you, when something worked, you leaned into it and doubled down on it versus trying to find other things that work. I think that's something that a lot of startups get wrong is they try to do too much when it comes to marketing and they spread themselves too thin and they don't have enough uh, energy, time, or just data to realize which one's working for them or not. So um, just the other day, someone reached out to the agency and was like, Hey, I want to try uh, Facebook and Instagram advertising. And I was like, Oh, do you do any now? They're like, Oh yeah, we get 5X on Google. And I was like, why try Facebook and Instagram? <laughs> That's crushing it for you. Go spend all your money there. Um, so, you know, uh, maybe shiny things, all the, all the new yeah. stuff is always fun, but you gotta really, you gotta, uh, don't go into something new until you like really, you know, optimize what's working. Yeah. It's, that's funny. Cause I, you know, we do all of our marketing for, um, Google and Facebook, um, in-house, like we've never used an agency actually. Um, I started, I started it and then since passed it on, um, or I didn't pass it on, but I work closely with one of our team members who handles the marketing, but we, we were always in it because I do believe that like, I, I, I there was going to be a point where I figured we would use an agency, but I actually, I do enjoy the marketing aspect of the, of the business. And I do enjoy like creating ads and Facebook and, and search ads. It's, it's a funny thing because like, I would like to pass that responsibility onto an agency, but at the same time, I, I want to know it so that so if I was to work with an agency, I'd be able to say to them like, "Well, hey, like I know how this works. I've been doing this, you know, <laughs> three years, so I know how to build an ad. I know how to do audiences. I know how to do placements. I know how to create the content. I I work with everybody on that. But it is always changing, as you know, right? Like it's always changing. There's always new shiny objects, even within those platforms that you might get hooked on. I remember a few years ago, everyone was like, Oh, are you doing CBO? I was like, what is CBO? Oh, campaign budget optimization. Like, Oh, we got to be doing that. You know? And then you see your ads start declining. You're like, why did I switch all my ads to CBO? <laughs> like, so there's a lot of things to stay up on. Um, but we're, I, I also believe like when I'm doing um, the marketing with my team, like we're trying to look at it holistically because I do, believe that you have to spend money on Google and on Facebook and they work together in a way. So I'm looking at my row as, as holistically, like not just on one platform versus the other, but certainly there's a lot of people that might Google something and then all of a sudden they don't, you know, they don't buy then, but now they're getting retargeting ads because they did shop. They did go to the website. Um, and I know a lot of this is changing with iOS 14. So we'll see what happens. Um, you know, playing it by ear, but I do want to spend more time and energy on the affiliates because I do think that that that'll be a better bang for the buck if you can find the right people. Well, even even before the iOS 14 thing, it was if you were measuring purely direct response on your Facebook and Instagram advertising or any channel, honestly, uh, that like doesn't bring into like 
the equation like lifetime value if you've got a super sticky product like somewhat consumable or something like that but also it doesn't bring into the equation of like how many people signed up for your email list from that campaign that are going to end up buying in three to six months because you've got an awesome welcome series built out through Clavio or whatever um so you know that's the i don't know the metrics are always you can spin them however you want and it it's just something to consider that like the ROAS is one that everyone like gleams towards instantly. And they're like, it needs to be as high as possible. But I think there's, you kind of got to look at the whole picture, like you said. Fully. Yeah, fully. Because um, we're also doing like, I mean, I, I, everyone was freaked out with the iOS 14 thing. So I, since then, like we we're now doing the post purchase survey, but only for first time customers to find out what, you know, how did they get there? I'm trying constantly looking at that data and seeing how, if this customer came from Google or Facebook. Um, and it's, it's, I mean, it's all very interesting, but I think the lifetime value is what's most important anyway. Um, listen, like we, we don't make a lot of money on that first purchase on a Google or Facebook ad. Like it's, you know, our margins aren't huge, you know, or that's not us. Um, so, we're looking at it like we're trying to win you over on that first purchase so that you come back for your second and third. Um, that's important to us. And like we, that also inspired us to build out our loyalty program to take care of those customers. Um, we do a lot. We're trying to do as much as we can to support our own customer base. I don't like using that word own, but you know what I mean. Yeah, we we've used it uh, a lot at the agency for like you know the types of retainers we offer for managed email and whatnot. Uh, and I think that the what the market's going towards instead of owned is like retention marketing. I think is the yeah. the more proper term moving <laughs> forward. Totally, and we rely heavily on on our Clavio flows, and um, we also use Postscripts for SMS. Um, and that I'm still like questioning on like how that works um we are getting a good roi on it like we, we do um it seems to be worthwhile um but i still don't know how i feel about getting text messages from brands sometimes I, me personally i'm like ooh, like i don't need this so I, i'm trying to be very delicate with our postscripts marketing um but i that's still evolving we'll see how that goes yeah i think that um it's getting there, but basically giving your customer the option of choosing the channel that you communicate with them at, instead of just bucketing them, bucking them into like SMS. I think, I think the line is thirty years old. I think anyone over thirty doesn't <laughs> want to get texted. I think everyone under thirty does. So it's so true. It's so true. Guys that work for me that are in their thirties or twenties, they they totally would agree with that. But it's funny. What I do appreciate because I'm over thirty. But what I do appreciate is when I get a, a, a text message notification that like a package arrived or like a shipping update that I'm like, Oh, that's kind of cool. Um, but if I get a salesy text, that's where I'm like, Ooh, mm, I'd rather just get an email. Yeah, I agree with you there. It's, you know, I'll check a text message and then I'll run to my front door. It's Christmas morning at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We actually get because we do do a lot of those um, emails and t and text messaging for um, for shipping updates and stuff for customers that sign up for it, obviously. But we um, but we were having a problem too with like uh, USPS during that whole Shipageddon or whatever they call that, like yeah. where 
where packages like our customers are getting email notifications saying that their package arrived um, when in fact it didn't. So they were calling us like, oh, I got an email. My package is here, but it's not here. So what do I do? I'm like, well, we're actually now learning that USPS is um, letting customers know that their package is there when it's on its way. Because it turns out that like, I, I don't know how that works, but what I can tell you is that it, it always, 99% of the time, a customer would call us telling us their package was there and it wasn't. It showed up a couple hours later. So it was almost like they preempted them. They get ready or something. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, obviously the last year was wild, uh, you know, especially on a brand that is very closely tied to travel. Um, what have you got? What what changed for you guys during the pandemic, and what are you now doing, kind of uh, heading into the future? Yeah. Um, so 2020 was um, it was super challenging, as it was for everybody, um, and for us specifically, it was um, our sales of on March 13th, I, I believe, 2020 was the, sh- the official shutdown, in, at least in California, and. Um, our sales just plummeted. They just came to a stop as if our website wasn't working, you know? And then like a couple sales would trickle through. Um, but I took a couple weeks to really think about um, what we were going to do. And everybody was crazy back then. And it was, it was such the unknown. Um, but what we ended up doing was um, pivoting to making masks, um, but early on, um, April 1st, I, I was in LA and I was at my factories, getting them set up as essential businesses and um, started making masks to donate. And then we started selling them. And then, and then we were just busy doing that for the next few months. Um, basically, into summer, we were nonstop making masks, still selling a product of our normal lineup here or there. But we started... Um, selling the masks. And then I started marketing the masks actually, along with our other products on Facebook and Instagram and Google. Um, even though Facebook kept shutting down the mask ads, but the truth is Chase is like, we were, we're making these masks and selling them and mar- well, marketing them and selling them on Facebook was, was a, was a benefit for us because, and for the customers, because customers back then, A, they couldn't get masks and B, the factories were working. And we couldn't pay them. So by making masks, by them making masks, us marketing them and selling them, we were able to like come up with the capital to pay them to stay, keep making these masks. We'll pay you. And it wasn't margins on them. It wasn't like a huge win or anything like that. Because people asked me, um, oh, you must have been killing it making masks. And I was like, no, not really. Like we, we made a lot of masks, but we... Um, there was no margins. We just were making them to just kind of do our part and just get as many masks out there as we can. Now, um, the, the bigger thing was, was, well, now we have all these people that only bought masks from us during the pandemic. So how do we turn them into aviator customers and buying jeans and hoodies and t-shirts when the world opens? So that was kind of our focus. So we kind of were, you know, we were hopeful that, as the world opens, we might be able to get a lot of these people to then buy our other products. So it did grow our audience. But to this day, in you know, mid-2021, in July, we, we don't sell a lot of products to those people. It was almost like a one-off. So we had to just be very careful that we didn't damage our audience base and, 
and with our marketing efforts, like through Clavio and stuff like that, like we have to just be careful and be aware that we're not pushing all of our products to people that only bought masks, right? They don't want, you know, they don't want our pro- other products. So that, that's been the big challenge for 2021, along with the world slowly opening, but not really. Like we were hopeful that the people would start traveling in masses again um, in this summer of 2021, but it's still not everything's open. It's still complicated. Absolutely. Now with, um, you know what? How has the kind of marketing stack changed with uh, with all with all that considered? Are you still heavily invested in Facebook and Instagram? I know that you were doing Google as well. Are there any other channels that you're testing out? We did test out um, TikTok for a hot minute, <laughs> like about as long as one of those videos. But um, and it's just I just don't know if my customers there. Um, Cause we had, there was a TikToker who, um, again, this is what happens. It happened with the travel blogger back in 2013, but one of our customers sent us a TikTok video. They like tagged us, um, ABA USA in this video of this girl reviewing women's jeans and how they, they suck because they don't have pockets and guys jeans do. And, and she was so upset. So this, one of our customers tagged us in the video and said, Aviator, check out this review. Maybe you should send her some jeans. So I reached out to that TikToker and we sent her some jeans. And she did a, she impromptu did like a, a viral video wearing our jeans, showing it. it's actually pretty funny. I'll, I'll send you the link um, after the interview. It's, it was pretty funny, but it, it did. And that went viral. And, and I don't know, hundreds of thousands of people viewed it and saw it and went to the website to check it out. But most of those people got turned off with the price point. Um, they didn't understand our price point. So it's kind of, I think it was probably a, probably a young audience. And um, we're looking more into like, they're probably people that are buying, um, you know, spending less on their clothes or buying recycled clothes or, you know, I mean that like sincerely, but you know, a lot of, yeah. like I know a lot of people in their twenties, they like to go thrift shopping or they, you know, so they, they buy vintage Levi's, for instance. Um, but we always battle with people like that. They, you know, people will say on our Facebook ads, people will comment, well, why do your jeans cost $135? That's, that's ridiculous. And then with our push, you know, they can get Wranglers for 20. And I was like, well, where do you think they're making those Wranglers for $20? You know, and what kind of, and, and are they mass producing them? How do you get to a $20 price point on a pair of jeans? we're making our jeans right down the street in LA and we're paying fair wages. So we're supporting our community. There's a huge difference. Yeah. There's a huge difference. And we're putting features in our jeans that aren't in Wranglers, frankly. Absolutely. I, I actually read something uh, this afternoon on Twitter, uh, just some guy talking about advertising on TikTok. And he was like one of the first uh, things he said, he was just like, make sure that you turn on 18 plus only for all of your ads. It's because he's like, <laughs> half of those views are people that don't have a credit card. So it's not even worth kind of putting an ad in front of them. <laughs> totally. Totally. I know. Oh, my, I have kids and they're on TikTok, So they kind of educate me a little bit. Yeah. My nephews, they're all about it. Um, is there anything that I didn't ask you today that you think would be worthwhile to share with our audience? A couple things. One, well, one is that um, I guess this pandemic has taught us about the whole work from home and work remote. Um, our, my, my, like operations guy 
um, who's young, since moved to Raleigh, North Carolina, and we're based in Los Angeles. And he gave me two months notice because he, because he like, you know, we have a great relationship and he's, and he's awesome. So, and I was like, oh, wow, you're moving to North Carolina. Wow. What am I going to do? I was thinking at first, but then I slept on it. I came back to, to work the next day and I said, well, well, what do you think of just working from there? You know? And he was like, really kind of surprised and was like, yeah, I would actually love to. It's kind of made sense. So that was something, you know, this whole, if you're an e-com business, I, you know, I don't think you have to work where you're based necessarily. Um, maybe to a certain degree, like we, we certainly need some people on the ground here in LA because we, we do all of our shipping out of here too. We don't use a 3PL. We do all of our shipping in-house and we do that on for, for several reasons um, that I can get into if you want to hear them. Sure. Yeah. I think that all the insights. Yeah. Yeah. Like we do. So like, for instance, like we're doing, it's clothing, right? So with e-commerce and if you a clothing brand, you're always dealing with returns. Um, and if you're using a 3PL, you're paying for that. And um, I've had some mentors in the fashion space just kind of teach me like where I want to be. What's the sweet spot of um, being an online clothes or denim brand, for instance, like what, where do you, where are you to be profitable? Your return rates should be, you know, below 30%. And I was like, this is what a mentor told me. I was like, wow, 30% returns. That's a lot. And we do free shipping, free returns. This is going to get expensive and even to those margins. But back to like the lifetime value, that's what's most important anyway. If we just give that person the best experience on their first purchase, even if they have to swap out their jeans once or twice, um, let's get them in the right pair. And sometimes that means shipping two pairs of jeans out, even though they ordered one. We'll talk to them if a customer's concerned about what their size is. We'll just take that pressure off for them because we're just trying to, we're just trying to ship as many products as we can and take out all the friction possible. So what's the hang up on buying jeans online? It's mostly, are these going to fit? So if a customer calls or chats with us or emails us, we'll tell them like, just order the one pair and the one size you think is best. We'll include another complimentary. You can send back what you don't want to keep. We'll, we'll include the return label. So there's things like that, which is one reason. We also only make our jeans in one inseam length. Because another mentor told me, you know, what kills fashion brands is inventory and, and personnel. So how many people do you have? How big is your staff? And how much inventory do you have? Because fashion inventory loses value. That was what I was kind of taught and what I've learned in my career. Um, so that's why making clothing with function instead of fat, instead of just fashion, it's the function that will hold the value for us. And holding less inventory means, you know, not make, not investing as much in our, inventory, which if I had to make, if I made jeans, for instance, for men in a 30 inseam, a 32 inseam and a 34 inseam, now I'm pretty much have triple my inventory. But if I could just make them in a 34 inseam and then offer free custom hemming upon ordering, then I could cut down my inventory to a third. And I could offer like a, a customer experience that that they'll remember. They'll, oh, I can get my jeans custom hem. Great. Now, if you're a first-time customer, you might not want to. You might want to see how they fit first. But for all of our repeat customers, they all want that free custom hemming because they all believe in the product. They know what they're getting and they know their size. 
Absolutely. That's a bunch of awesome advice, especially for anyone that's thinking about getting into fashion. So I, I thank you a lot for sharing that with us. So um, quickly, give a shout out to the brand. If people are interested in, in finding some US made high quality jeans, where should they go? They should go to aviatorusa.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Colby. Yeah. Thank you, Chase. I really appreciate it. It was fun. All right. I can't thank our guests enough for coming on the show and sharing their knowledge and journey with us. We've got a lot to think about and potentially add into our own business. You can find all the links in the show notes. Make sure you head over to honestecommerce.co to check out all of the other amazing content that we have. Make sure you subscribe, leave a review. And obviously, if you're thinking about growing your business, check out our agency at electriceye.io. Until next time.